You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. Hello friends, I pray you're doing well today. So I'm excited today to plug into the world of The Matrix. And since I started The Myth Pilgrim, it's been something uh, so many people have been telling me to explore. What with references like um, Trinity and Nebuchadnezzar, Zion and Neo's sort of salvific death and resurrection, this story is positively littered with Christian themes. Indeed, be not mistaken by The Matrix's sort of science fiction technological veneer, This modern myth is saturated with religious themes that have evidently stirred something deep within the cabins of our secular world. And so, after seeing the recent Matrix reboot in the cinemas, I was inspired to begin exploring this fascinating world, and I aim to do so across a few episodes, as there is indeed much richness to tap into. Now, being a trilogy originally, it is nearly impossible to summarise the story of The Matrix succinctly while doing justice to the world in which the story takes place. So, for this episode, I'm merely going to jog your memory and set the scene again for what The Matrix actually is, and refer to the story elements of the first movie only. I'm going to assume that you've seen this film at least once, meaning you won't be bothered if I give away a spoiler or two, lol. Look, even if you haven't seen them, the films are still worth watching after listening to this episode, and in fact, you might gain a deeper appreciation of the story after listening. So anyway, here's the first Matrix movie in summary. Thomas Anderson is a regular bloke with a regular job in a programming company. But despite his ordinariness, he has always sensed something was not quite right with the world around him, as if he was living in a dream state and so he begins privately searching for answers to this feeling. His natural gifting leads him to delve into the world of cyberspace, where, under the alias name Neo, he connects with a very special man called Morpheus. Yes. With the practical help of a woman named Trinity, whom Morpheus sends to Neo to bring him to himself, Neo meets with Morpheus one stormy night. There, Morpheus tells Neo that it is in fact he, Morpheus, who had been searching for him his whole life, and affirms Neo's instinct that something was not quite right about the world around him. Morpheus then says that if he were willing to, he could show Neo the truth about the life he was living, and reveal to him how every person is obliviously living within what he called the Matrix. This is the scene where Morpheus famously presents Neo the choice between the blue pill and the red pill, saying, you take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Of course, referencing Alice in Wonderland, for those of you who don't know. Morpheus then finishes by saying to Neo, remember, all I'm offering is the truth. A slightly scared uh, Neo takes the red pill and in that instant goes through a sort of literal rebirth where Neo awakens again to the fact that he and billions of human beings around him have in fact been living life plugged into a massive machine. 
detached now from the machine, he then gets dramatically plunged into a pool of water and is raised back out again by the good guys. Once he comes back to his senses, Morpheus explains to him the truth about history. In the early 21st century, a war had broken out between humanity and the intelligent machines we had created. After the humans learned to block the machines' access to solar energy, which they relied upon for their strength, the machines responded by capturing human beings instead and harvesting our natural bioelectric power. You could say that our body's electricity, rather than the sun, became their new source of power. In order to pacify our minds into submission for such a heinous task, the machines created the Matrix, a simulated virtual reality world which was pulled over our eyes in order to make us think we were still living in the world of 1999. But here's the thing. As the movie starts, none of the billions of human beings in the world realize that they are living in the Matrix. It is the only world they knew, and they certainly weren't aware of the real reality that they were essentially being held enslaved as living batteries for the evil machines. And so, by being pacified by the Matrix, the human race is held blissfully captive, and the machines are sort of able to win the war. But that's until Neo comes along, which kind of makes up the rest of the story. So, as it turns out, not every single human is plugged into the Matrix. A small group of humans remain unplugged, as it were, and take refuge in the last underground city of Zion. This group of rebels work to free the minds of those plugged into the Matrix, and Morpheus is one of these rebels. And it is he and his crew who learn to hack into the Matrix to unplug enslaved humans and recruit them in their revolt. Morpheus feels his particular calling is to find and free the mind of the Chosen One, a person prophesied to be able to save humanity from the machine slavery. The story of The Matrix Part 1 then it really is about Neo's journey of realizing he is the one and learning what it would entail. Along the way, he learns that anyone who is unplugged from The Matrix can in fact learn to bend the rules within it, things like bending gravity and time and space. And to do this would be essential if Neo were to be able to defeat the agents. Mr. Anderson. The agents are the guys dressed in black FBI-like suits with sunglasses and earpieces who are, within the Matrix, sentient programs that guard the Matrix and try to ensure that everyone plugged within it stays oblivious to their sleep state. You could say that within the Matrix, the agents are the story's chief nemesis, while outside the Matrix in the real world, the machines are the chief nemesis. The first movie focuses mainly on Neo's learning to conquer the agents within the Matrix. Chief among them, of course, which is none other than Agent Smith. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. Mr. Anderson. As the story goes, now I'm skipping details and other characters here, there is a traitor in Morpheus's crew who ends up siding with the agents in order to hand over Neo. His name is Cypher. And despite being unplugged himself, he is actually sick of living in the real world, preferring that blissful ignorance of the Matrix instead. He makes a pact with the agents that if he hands Neo over, he could be plugged back into the Matrix and live a rich and comfortable life, even though we all knew it was fake. So in this way, the agents get hold of Neo, and there's a big showdown. In the end, Neo is killed by Agent Smith, but then is beautifully resurrected by the kiss of Trinity, 
whom he had since fallen in love with, and her with him. His resurrected body is both the same but different to that before his death, for he is now beyond the normal rules of physics and gravity and time. Thus, he can outdo Agent Smith in almost every aspect, and in the final move, Neo dives into Smith's body and destroys it from within. The story ends. Okay, see how even a super quick summary took a while to get through. So much richness is there in the story. For the rest of this particular episode, I'm going to focus upon the biblical symbolism of the four main characters: Neo, Trinity, Morpheus, and Cipher. In the next episode, I will focus on the symbolism of the Matrix itself, being an apt parallel image between the Kingdom of Darkness and the Kingdom of Heaven.、Mm. Okay, so the first character we'll explore is, of course, Neo or Thomas A. Anderson. Naturally, he's the most obvious character that is symbolic of the messianic Christ figure, the chosen one whose death and resurrection would would result in the destruction of evil. Note that Neo or any of the characters we'll explore today are not by any means literal representations of biblical characters. For example, Jesus, unlike Neo, doesn't fire guns and punch people up. But nevertheless, they do capture something of their key archetypal features, especially for a modern audience. Let's look deeper at Neo. Firstly, his real name is Thomas Anderson, and this itself is interesting because Anderson literally means "son of man," while Neo means "new." You could say then that right from the outset. Thomas Anderson's journey is actualizing his identity as the new Son of Man, akin to how the Church Fathers recognized Jesus Christ as the new Adam, of which the first Adam was the original man. And just like Jesus, who spent his first thirty-three years in obscurity, Neo also emerges out of a life of obscurity, living an ordinary life otherwise unknown by others, and his real identity. Yet his profession as a hacker and programmer is also significant from a spiritual perspective. If we understand our fallen world to be somewhat akin to the Matrix, well, upon his incarnation, Jesus could be understood to be a hacker, one who discreetly enters our fallen world and subverts it from within. In programming terms. Jesus didn't come to destroy or delete the old program, but to reprogram it from within, beginning, of course, with the human heart, the CPU of each person. So, in slightly humorous terms, from the Kingdom of Darkness's perspective, Jesus is a hacker, one who enters in subversively from outside in order to reprogram a corrupted program from within. This is most powerfully demonstrated through the way in which Neo defeats Agent Smith at the end. Rather than evil being overcome by evil or force by more force, or a virus even overcoming another virus, Neo, like Jesus, takes evil upon himself and paradoxically destroys it from within. After his resurrection moment through Trinity, we'll explore that soon. He literally dives into and enters evil into Agent Smith's body and destroys him. His resurrected body, like Jesus's, is permanently changed and yet remains somewhat the same. Both obeying the normal physics of the world and yet transcendent from them, this feature of the movie hints at the way the resurrected Jesus could be walking and talking and eating fish, yet be seemingly walking through walls, be unrecognisable, and suddenly disappear. 
how our resurrected life and bodies will be like remains a mystery. But we can probably garner it'll be as somewhat impressive and interesting as the resurrected Neo in the movie. Okay, so swimming along, we now move on to the character of Trinity. So you might be surprised that the character of Trinity is probably not simply a representation of the Holy Trinity, as in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but more specifically, the person of the Holy Spirit. Even before writing this episode, I had always felt this to be the case and was quite pleased to find other commentators actually agreeing with me on this point. Why is the woman called Trinity the Holy Spirit? Well, firstly, Catholic tradition has always posited the spirit as being depicted as female, with the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, being a feminine word for breath or spirit. There's also something profound about her relationship with Neo that is very much a Jesus-Holy Spirit relationship. First of all, Jesus and the spirit are inseparable in their salvific mission. Just as the Spirit comes to Jesus at his baptism, sent by the Father, so it is that Trinity comes to Neo at the beginning of his journey, she who is sent by the God the Father figure in the Matrix Morpheus. More on that later. Also, a key strength of the feminine archetype is that of openness and nurturing. And we can see that all throughout the Matrix that Trinity's character is very much these for both Neo and for Morpheus, both the Father and the Son. She can be all this, yet without losing any of her strength and power, for in reality, the Holy Spirit is both the gentle dove and the consuming fire, both the gentle breeze of Elijah and the mighty winds that part the Red Sea. Throughout the movies, we see Trinity's vulnerability and her strength, her compassion and her conviction. She is a figure of paradox, and this makes her a very compelling figure indeed. And then, in the final climatic resurrection scene, it is the love of Trinity that raises Neo back to life, where she, like the Holy Spirit did with Jesus, literally gives him back the breath of life, the pneuma, back into his body, accomplished through the kiss she gives him. Wow. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim, do consider sharing it with your friends so that we can together encounter God veiled in our favourite tales. I'm always open to your feedback and ideas too, so always feel free to contact me on The Myth Pilgrim Facebook page or through the website at themythpilgrim.com. Okay, next you have the iconic figure of Morpheus, played by none other than the great Lawrence Fishburne. Yes. As hinted at earlier, Morpheus plays something of the figure of God the Father in the story, not in the sovereign sense of being the master of all creation, but in his role as the father of both Neo and Trinity, the Son and the Spirit. If we were to unpack a little Trinitarian theology, we know that God the Father pre-exists the Son and Spirit by order, though not necessarily by time. And in this way, Morpheus can be seen as the one who initiates the other two into their respective roles in salvation. However, what's also important is that Morpheus, despite being the father figure, never compels anyone to act or to believe. He always gives people, even his allies, the choice between the blue pill and the red pill. In other words, Morpheus' fatherhood reflects something essential about God's fatherhood. 
his respect for free will, our capacity to choose. This offers us good reflection when we are at times feeling God is a tyrant who robs us of life and treats us like his slaves. Can you instead imagine God the Father like Morpheus? Yes. All of that being true, while I was preparing this episode, I also came across commentary that also presented Morpheus as a John the Baptist character. And I believe that this is actually a good point. For one thing, Morpheus, despite how epic he is as a character, is humble enough to only ever be pointing the way towards the one to come, Neo. When he feels his mission is done, he is willing to, like John the Baptist, descend so that Neo could ascend. This is exemplified in his willingness to sacrifice himself for Neo at the end and be captured by the agents. Further, the first time in the Gospels Jesus meets John the Baptist, or at least as grown-ups, it was at his baptism in the Jordan River. Likewise, the first time Neo meets Morpheus, it is also at his equivalent baptism scene, with lots and lots of water present. First, it is a thunderstormy night with torrential rain all around them. Then, when Neo takes the red pill, he literally gets reborn from the machine womb, where you see him being detached from an artificial umbilical cord. He gets washed through a chute akin to a birth canal and is plunged into a pool of water naked, before being raised back up into the light. A bit like the heavens opening. And all this time, Trinity, the spirit archetype, is present by his side and even hovering over him. If this isn't symbolic of Christian baptism, I simply do not know what is. (laughs) Okay, the last character we'll explore today is the character of Cypher, the character who ends up resenting being free of the Matrix and sells out his friends, including Neo, in order to be plugged back in. In many ways, the film portrays him as the devil character, or at least the strongly Judas one, the one who makes a pact with the enemy and betrays his friends. His appearance is remarkably Satan-like, with the devil's iconic moustache and goatee, And he is also the one that sows doubt and confusion to just about every encounter he has with Neo, just as the enemy does with Jesus in the wilderness. You may be interested to know that the name Cypher is actually short for Lucifer, the biblical name of the devil. And at the same time, Cypher also means zero in Arabic, which in the binary coded world of the Matrix is the polar opposite to Neo, who is one, the one. So, the battle lines are drawn right from the start. But I chose to end today's episode with Cypher because I actually think he offers us some profound reflection about the reality of spiritual life. If I may hazard being a little controversial here, we may be more like Cypher and Judas than we first like to think. After all, in simple terms, if you were to pick between a comfortable reality and an uncomfortable one, wouldn't it seem reasonable to pick the comfortable one? I mean, compare the life inside the Matrix to the life outside of it, at least from Cypher's perspective. In one, within the Matrix, he's rich, comfortable, eating a juicy steak, drinking fine wine and surrounded by luxury. While in the real, unplugged world, he works slavishly in grimy old ships, is lonely, undignified, and in the place of sipping fine wine, is sipping engine degreaser instead. Yes, yes, she said that. Yes, we know the unplugged world is the real world and the fine dining Matrix world isn't. But isn't there also a part of us that is also like, who cares, I prefer luxury instead? Ignorance is bliss, as the saying goes, and hence, it may be very likely that many of us choose to remain willfully asleep, willfully blind, as it were, then choose Christ, who is the truth. 
So many of the biblical injunctions of Jesus warns against blindness, not because it's not obvious that we shouldn't be blind, but because many of us choose to remain blind. If seeing requires me to face real reality, one filled with shortcomings and pain and limitations and broken people and suppressed memories, it's no wonder many of us choose not to be free. For freedom in this lifetime can very much at first seem like the wilderness that the Israelites are wandering around in, finally freed from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but not quite yet reaching the promised land. During this in-between time, we may hanker for the onions and leeks of Egypt. Yes, they actually said that. (laughs) At the expense of our own real freedom. This is the human drama, and something, again, we'll explore more in later episodes. Hence, despite appearing to end on a slightly depressing note, Cypher offers us good practical pilgrim reflections. Where in our life might I prefer to live the lie of the matrix rather than living in the real world? Where have I remained willfully blind to the truth, preferring to live a lie, whether that be the lie about a relationship or a career choice or my faith or even a belief about myself? And more importantly, what steps can I take, like Neo, to take the red pill, to choose to face the difficult truth, and so at the same time be set truly free? This is a toughie, and I implore you to ask Trinity, I mean the spirit of truth, to help you in this process of awakening. She who is both pastorally sensitive when necessary, and yet ferociously passionate where we need a good waking up slap. (laughs) Okay, hopefully that sits well with you. Until next time, dear pilgrims, journey forth, take care, and God bless.